Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Rich Siegel. Rich is the author of a new book called Mr. Siegel Writes to Washington. Rich is a veteran advertising copywriter and creative director. And along with his illustrious career on Madison Avenue, Rich has written for Hollywood, both TV and movies. He also has a wonderful, insightful, and sardonic blog called Round 17. Rich, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Why, thank you, Rob. It's uh, a little strange hearing you talk about me as an outside uh, screenwriter since since we we partnered together on a couple of TV things. (gasps) Shh, don't don't give that away yet. You're you know you're a professional <laughs> guest on the show. Let's scratch that. <laughs> well, before we, before we get into uh, our uh, illustrious past, let's talk about the present. You've got a really cool project. This Mr. Siegel writes to Washington. Why don't you tell us what this book is? Well, you know, like so many of uh, the creative projects I've worked on, it just started out of the blue. I didn't I didn't like sit down and go, okay, I'm going to do this. It just sort of came about and evolved. And part of it was. Uh, uh, this collective anger slash rage at the current regime that's uh, in Washington, D.C. And so I vent a lot <laughs> on the Internet. And if anybody's a Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter f- follower, they know that. I just I can't contain my my anger at what's going on with this country. And then about a year and a half ago, I was reading something from another of our colleagues, a hero of, of mine, uh, Luke Sullivan, and he had put out a post about how we all have to not just, you know, observe what's going on, but we have to participate in it. And so I decided, you know, like, well, the best tool that I have in my toolbox is, is the keyboard. So I just started writing letters. And then I, I sort of challenged myself. I said, I'm going to write to every one of these bastards in Washington that, that, that has enabled this president, all the, meaning all the, the GOP senators. And so, you know, it seemed mighty and undoable at first, but, you know, I just took it in pieces and did one a week and just started writing letters. And it just sort of took off from there. It's sort of like, uh, you know, after you log a, a couple of miles on the marathon, you just like count them down and just go, OK, I'm getting close to the end. Yeah, well, it's very powerful to read. I and mean, it's very funny. I mean, anybody who knows, you knows it's going to be funny. But to sit down and start reading these letters, I mean, it was almost uh, the opposite effect I had when I read, you know, Alexander Hamilton's letters in high school, you know, which were mind numbing. You know, these were actually, you know, really kind of uh, kind of inspiring. And, and I feel like this is um, like you say, you know, from from Luke Sullivan, you know, this is our patriotic duty to complain about the government. Yep. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because it, the thing that it started as like, well, I was just going to write funny, mad-ass letters to these people. And then it sort of evolved and turned into something I didn't expect. And that is, you know, it, it became very informative for me. I mean, I didn't I – don't, I don't know if any of us know. I doubt anybody could name 53 senators. I could. I could name all of them right now. And I started learning more and more about the the upper chamber. And, you know, like each week I would delve into each senator's past and – find out who they were, what they were about. And it was just so, like, enlightening. Just like, wow, these are the people we've, we've put in office to represent us? <laughs> it's crazy. And I, I hope when the reader completes the book that they come away with a not just, you know, a few laughs from the book, but just a, a fuller picture of the people we've put in charge. It's just it's just not right. I don't know if you're the, you felt this way too, but I was not a political person until, uh, by the way, what's 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 one of your favorite nicknames for our president? Uh, Captain Ouchie Foot. Let's go with Captain Ouchie Foot for now. <laughs> I mean, since Captain Ouchie, 
scratchy foot, you know, stumbled into Washington, suddenly I've become very political. And I was not this way. Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a common thing. I wasn't either. But now, you know, politics has become the kind of sport of the year. You know, it's what we follow every day. And it's very much like sports. You keep score of like who's winning, who's up, who's down, who's got momentum. It's just something that is consuming. And he doesn't allow us any break from it either. It is unbelievable. And part of me sits there and goes, wait a minute, what happened to the music business dominating culture? What happened to sports dominating culture? No, no, no. This guy is culture. Yeah, he's like a black hole. He just sucks up all the attention. And there's no relent to it. Now, it's funny because I'm, I'm hearing pundits saying the reason that he might lose next year, which I don't think he's going to, unfortunately, is that they, you know, they, they're speculating that the country is uh, just exhausted from him. Like he's just exhausted everybody. And there's certainly that on, on this side of the aisle. But on the other side, you watch these rallies and you see these people and you go, they're not exhausted. They, they love this stuff. Yeah. Well, somebody was telling me that uh, Americans are not interested in politics, but we like to be entertained. Yep. I don't know. I was all for kind of a gladiatorial thing, but uh, I guess we're not going to get the gladiators. We're going to get, as you call them, precedent uh, shit. Gibbon. President shit Gibbon, <laughs> which is another one of my uh, my nicknames. And the funny thing about President shit Gibbon was I would write it in letters and I'd put it on posts on social media and I would purposely misspell precedent. I would spell it P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T. So it was sort of like baiting the hook. So if anybody was had uh, you know an issue with me or they were a supporter of Trump, they would go, oh, look at you, you asshole. You can't even spell president right. And then go, oh, you're right. I did misspell it just like Trump did. <laughs> well, well, let's talk a little bit about this as, uh, as an act of creative. Because uh, the letters themselves, uh, you know, I mean, each, each one is... Like you say, you know, you're you're trying to complain, you know, you're trying to do your civic duty here, but they're just so damn funny. I mean, how, you know, how much of, uh, you know, your influences? I, I mean, I see a lot of like National Lampoon in here. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, that was when I was coming up. That that was what I I dreamed to be doing. It was like uh, being a a writer for National Lampoon or or. Onto, you know, onto the next thing, Spy Magazine. But that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, uh, you know, follow in the tradition of uh, Art Buckwald and Doug Kenny and just, like, go at it, you know, like, and take the humor to the page and go with the issues of the day. And uh, I think in these letters, too, so you've written, it was uh, 53, right, including uh, an additional one to, to Mike Pence? Well, no, it, tur- it turned out there's, <laughs> and this is, again, how I, I don't keep track of things very well. I ended up writing two to Bob Corker, who originally was going to be one of my heroes because he was one he was the first senator to speak out about Trump and and call the White House a, a senior adult care center uh, and I thought there might have been some hope there like he's going to rally the troops and and start swinging things the other way but he turned out to be a dud so I ended up writing to him quite a few or twice and then I also somehow <laughs> I wrote to uh, Senator Rick Scott down in Florida. I didn't realize I had written him two letters because I was so angry about whatever he was doing at the time. I think it was spear, you know, like spearheading the healthcare initiative, which which we still haven't seen, by the way. This is a, another thing, like Trump drops little things in interviews and he did this, and I'll just give you the date. On June 17th, anybody listening could go check on the Google. They'll, they'll see that on June 17th, he was talking to George Stephanopoulos and he said that he already had a new health care plan outlined and it was just being worked on and tweaked. And he said he would unveil it in two months. 
Well, guess what? That was August 17th, and we haven't heard word one about it. Mm. And that's how he operates. Nobody calls him to – and I tried to, like, send letters and tweets to reporters going, this is the story. Why aren't you holding him accountable? But nobody does. And he can just drop this bullshit like he's working, and he's not working. You know, the thing I like to draw the parallel to is like in advertising, if if you and I had told a client, you know, like there's a presentation coming up, we're going to see you in six weeks with three new campaigns and hopefully win your business. Well, if that six weeks passed and we just didn't show up, we wouldn't get the business. We wouldn't we wouldn't even get called again. But the the way he operates is so it's so beyond the pale. I just don't. I don't have the words for it. I know. Well, you do. I, I beg to differ. You do have the words for it. <laughs> uh, all right. So you. So you start. So and by the way, just in terms of the process. So these letters first appeared on the blog, right? Right. Uh, round right. seventeen, which is probably the subject of its own podcast. <laughs> um, and then, did anyone write you back? I knew that was coming. You mean from the senators? Yeah. Just one. Who was- just one. And, and it was a, it was a lazy ass form letter, and it came. Uh, I think it came um, via email, and it was from uh, Tom Cotton, hmm. Senator Tom Cotton, who was not one of my favorite. I mean, they're all, they're all, none of them are my favorites, but he's particularly odious. He's just awful person. Well, yeah, and I and I think what's you know wonderful about what you've done is when you when you read the letters, you get to weave in. You know all their ne- nefarious activities. <laughs> I mean, just 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 randomly, one uh, one of my favorites, Chapter Forty Six, Senator James Rich, who you've dubbed the Weasel on the Hill. <laughs> By the way, everybody, when you read the letters, uh, each senator has a little nickname, which I love. Our whole, you know, thank you, uh, Captain Ouchie Foot, for giving us a whole nickname culture. But what I love about the letters too is that you've got you know all the proper kind of Ben Dreyer English, you know, all of the, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Miriam Webster, this is how you, uh, strunk in white, this is how you frame up a professional letter, which is great. <laughs> and uh, then you go right in. So, for example, on this one, if, if I may, this is to uh, Senator Rich, who's at uh, SR483 in the Russell Senate office building, which I'm sure is where the office is. So it goes like this. Dear Senator Rich, I know you. I recognize you from the Senate intelligence hearings, an oxymoron to say the least. I can't believe it has taken me this long to get to you. I'm now at the tail end of my list of Republican senators to whom I've been handwriting letters. I still have Kramer, Young, Hawley, and those other faceless imbeciles no one has ever heard of. And then you go right into it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a, that was a good one. He is a, a little—the funny thing is that you mentioned the— um, the nicknames at the top, that was a last-minute thing. I didn't do that originally when I wrote the letters, but when I was putting the book together, uh, which, again, that was the most <laughs> labor-intensive part of this thing, not the letter writing. The letter writing, I can I can get amped up on, like, six cups of coffee and just <laughs> and just reel one off. The, but the putting of the book together, it, it, you know, anybody who's published a book knows, that, especially without an editor, that's the labor-intensive part. But when I got these done and I, I had hired this woman on the outside to put the formatting together, she showed me the manuscript and I go, it, it just seems kind of empty at the top. And then, you know, like, you know, he's fond of nicknaming. And I just said, well, I'll give myself one last challenge. And this literally happened like two weeks before I hit the send button to publish the thing. I said, 
right, I'm going to redo the manuscript. I'm going to put a, a little nickname <laughs> at the top of each, each one of these. Yeah, so, so, so the nicknames are an art in themselves. Like, um, again, just on the next, uh, next uh, chapter here for Senator Johnny Isaacson. Again, I don't even know half these people. He's Johnny Apple Polisher. <laughs> and I think for, you know, any of the creatives out there who are listening, you know, read these letters because I actually think they're they're so well written, you know, as pieces of copy. And uh, they're persuasive. And they're persuasive in a way that, again, it makes you laugh. And we're going to get into this because I want to ask you a bit about the creative malaise in the world. But I feel like we don't write with this kind of clarity and hilarity anymore. Well, you you know what's funny because I was I was thinking about it and I, I I thought you'd start asking me about that, but I I sort of um, was thinking about how I wrote these letters, and you know you know my past I've written a thousand corporate manifestos, and you know these are not unlike that. You sort of like you know where you want to end this thing with a, a good punch at the end, and you've got to work your way from the top to the bottom to get there, and. That's the way, man. You know, the way I would write a manifesto is like I sort of map it out in my head. I build up a head of steam, and then I go at it, and and it be, it becomes a uh, like a driving force. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm hoping people get in the letters. You just it just sucks you down to the bottom, and then hits you in the gut. And that's how I write manifestos. You know, like I know what the tagline is going to be, and I drive. I sort of backwards engineer it, and I go right for that. Yeah, and I think what's good about this is that there's a very consistent strategy here, which I think is go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's more my life mantra, isn't it? (laughs) So, uh, which is your favorite letter? My favorite letter was, well, it was going to be the last one, but it was, I wrote like a a four-page letter to Mitch McConnell, and it was the very end, and I had... You know, I had all I after I had completed the thing and knew about each of the other senators. And, you know, he's the one. I mean, he's the one that really is like a, a, a thorn in my side. And I let loose on him in, you know, what what John Robert called my masterpiece. So uh, if anybody if you read any letter, it's, it should be the last one, which is to Mitch McConnell. And and do you have Mitch McConnell's um, his nickname handy? Uh Oh, Kentucky's worst. And uh, Kentucky. Oh no, Aunt Aunt Pity Patty is Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's Aunt Pity Patty, Lindsey Graham. And oh, you know, and one more thing. When I was going through the list, and and this is something I just discovered. Like, there's so many senators who have the the letters A S S in their name. There's Barrasso and and Cassidy and Sass and uh, oh, and uh, there's a couple. There's a few of them. It's like what. How does that happen? Not to mention that other other senators' names like Blunt and Boozman and Crapo. There's just so many appropriately named senators. Yeah, well, I think on the whole ass thing is isn't that a whole uh, Democratic uh, you know product placement deal? <laughs> Could be. So, what do you hope? I mean, this is like a, a very pragmatic question. Like, what do you hope that this book achieves? Uh, you know. I don't. I don't really know. I don't know if it's going to achieve anything. I don't uh, set myself up for that kind of disappointment. I've. This is my fourth. <laughs> this is my fourth book. I was like, I. I did the whole self-publishing thing because, um, you know as well as I do, the other route is just so much. Uh, it's so weird, and there's so many um, detours, and you know the the other way to have done this. And we have friends who have done this. You know, Kathy Heppenstall mm. publishes books all the time. She's got you know, a publishing house. She's got a literary agent. I could have, like, pursued all that, but I, I just... 
it just becomes too cumbersome. And that's why I sort of love the idea of self-publishing because it puts all that control in my hands mm-hmm. and I don't have to deal with the bureaucracy and people going, I don't know if this is right or if there's a market for it. It's just, it's just, it's what I wanted to do, you know? And so let's talk about that process itself. I mean, how hard was it to publish a book? You know, it's surprisingly easy. The first one I did was uh, a different letter writing campaign. You know, I had, um, this was a uh, Tuesdays with Montu, my my adventures with the Nigerian con artist, and again that started like 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 this one. It just came on a whim. Where um, this was years ago, I got one of those uh, emails from a Nigerian prince, and he offered me twelve million dollars. And I'd seen these before, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to take this guy up on the offer, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna sucker him as much as he thinks he's suckering me. Like the first the first response to the guy from Nigeria was. Wow, I can't believe you're offering me $12 million when my uncle just died last week and he left me $3 million. This is my luckiest day. So I I got the guy on the other end to think, oh, my God, this guy's got a lot of money and he's stupid. (laughs) No, but I I love that, uh, you know, that judo move, you know, you're going to you're going to con the con. Exactly. And so I started writing letters back to all these Nigerian con artists. And what I did was I just, you know, like I would try to throw them off, but I would drop so many stupid references and all this cultural stuff that they had no idea about. But I knew that when American readers would see it, they'd go, what the hell is going on here? So I just I just had compiled hundreds of pages of this uh, correspondence with these uh, con artists, and I, and I thought, well, I'll put a book together. And that's when uh, self-publishing was first coming on the scene. So it's gone through a couple of iterations, and it's uh, it's a little easier now, mm. also because I know I know the, how the game is played. And um, and now we know a lot of people. Don Jung is, has self-published a book, a, a really good book. Uh, I don't know if you've read that, Rocket Through the Waters. Um, no, no, I'm still going through his last invoice. <laughs> you know, just to give you a moment, you know, Don said, because he knew I was doing the self-publishing thing, he goes, I, I wrote a manuscript. Now, Don is a CPA. He's the CPA to the all the ad people in L.A., and I'm thinking, oh, geez, a, a book written by a CPA, does, <laughs> does it get any drier than that? But he sent me the manuscript, and, you know, I started reading it, and next thing I know, I've finished the book in, like, two days and it was it was a page turner because you know Don is not like he's not not a Hemingway or Fitzgerald but he tells the story from his unique point of view and it and the story itself is interesting he, he used to be the lighting and sound guy for the doors and Jimi Hendrix and Jan Joplin and Crosby Stills and all when they were like wow. getting their start on Sunset yeah and so he tells a story from this you know this, this little Asian student's point of view who was going to school at UCLA. He didn't know what he was going to do, but he happened to be a sound guy for them, and it just it was kind of fascinating. Wow, I thought his book was going to be called Deduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it's funny. It's like um, I had a funny title for him. He didn't go for it. He, he went with Rocket Through Troubled Waters, but I it was like uh, it was something to the effect of like why I left the dull, dry world of rock and roll for the exciting world of <laughs> chartered accountancy. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. But, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, whoever wants to be a writer now yep. can disrupt what's going on. And I think when we were coming up, you know, oh, my God, to get anything published, I mean, this was, you know, so far from any, any anyone's can, you know, anyone's kind of view of things. You know, this brings up an, another point, and this harkens back to our old Shia Day days when, uh, when Lee was all about all of us becoming uh, media artists, mm. and it was all about making stuff. And I really believe that. And I think, 
you know, there could be an avenue for agencies where they not just they don't just do work for for clients, but they make the, their employees clients. And that, uh, it, it, pardon me for going off on a, mm. on a, a rift here, but I just think agencies have an opportunity to uh, sort of help spur the creativity of their people by helping them publish a book, put an art show together, make a film. They have some of those resources available to them. Why not turn their employees and give their employees a, a, a much more polished avenue for that kind of exploration? I think it would help. It would help morale, which is. Mm. Always sagging, and it would also it would uh, it would sort of turn an ad an ad agency into its own little studio. They'd have their own imprint. Yeah, and I was I always thought that was a promising kind of thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't think it's a tangent at all. It, it kind of segues, you know, back to something that I mentioned earlier, and I want you to comment on this because you you know get to get to see a lot of different agencies and different clients. But in some ways, there's an irony here that we have more opportunity to create, yet. We seem to be in a creative malaise, you know. In in, in I, I don't think it's just the ad world. I look around at pop culture. What do you what do you think's going on? Like, why, where is creativity today? Well, certainly in TV, there's plenty of creativity. I mean, I can't even keep up with it. I I, I have my few shows that I I follow, but there's you know my my daughters watch so much shit on Hulu and Netflix. I don't even I haven't even heard of half these titles. So you can definitely argue it's in TV, but. Um, and movies too, although you know there's been a flip flop where TV is is a hierarchy or higher on the chain mm. than film. But film, I feel it's like um, you know sequel palooza. You know everything's just a, a sequel. Yeah. Whereas I'm, I, you're right about television. I feel that that's not under the malaise. Let's say. Yeah, but it definitely it definitely feels it like a, a creative place is. Um, you know, I, I don't go into agencies much these days. A lot of my work is just, they just call me. They go, we have a brief. Can you do it? At, and I said, I'd like to do it at home because it's it's more comfortable and productive for me at home. And they were like, yeah, go ahead. You know, as long as, long as the work is there at the end, they're, they're fine with that. So I don't I don't get to go into agencies these days. But, you know, I think I don't think the open office plan helped. I, <laughs> I seriously don't think that helped. Um, I think, you know, creative people need time and space. And time is another thing. I mean, this... Uh, this whole gun to the head thing is, you know, that's a pet peeve of mine. It's like I, I just, I, I don't know how that operates or what, what the expectation. To me, it lowers the expectation when, when you say, okay, we need to see this by the end of the day. Well, no, don't we don't see it at the end of the day. It's not, it's not ready, you know. Yeah. I just wish that, you know, this fire alarm mentality was just would just go away because, you know, half the time agencies would would do that and then they'd get the work, they'd get the deck ready. And then they present it to the client and it would sit around at the client for a week or two weeks. And, well, the CEO's out on vacation. They won't get to see it for another week. It was like, well, then why did we rush, you know? Yeah, I know. The, uh, it's the, the insecurity within the process is not helping anything. No, not at all. Not at all. And, you know, back in the day, I, I still remember when I worked for Steve Roboski and we, ha- we would have a deadline. You know, this was back in the old days when we'd have a week or two weeks for a campaign. And he would kill stuff right up to the very end and then the account people come to the next day go well what are we going to show in the meeting and he go we're not going to show anything in the meeting because we're not ready yet and that was it (laughs) they'd walk away okay we'll have to figure out what to tell them but the work isn't ready yet and i don't i don't know if that's done anymore you know well no I mean, I was thinking too about uh, about our chat today. You know, you you know, you were certainly at at Shiat, you know, at a very brave time. You know, and I was thinking about the ABC campaign, 
And, um, you know, this was a brave agency. I mean, again, where's the bravery? When I looked at your book again, I'm thinking, this is this is gutsy. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, where is that today? I don't know where it is. Um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the the demands uh, of the day and it, it, here's the other thing is like I don't think the spreading out of the media landscape has helped people. You know, back in back in our time, we would do we it would be the, the pyramid was a lot shorter. You'd come up with an idea, then it would go to, it would translate to a TV campaign, and then off of that, you'd do some some print and outdoor, and maybe some radio, and then maybe some experiential or viral stuff. So that's where the pyramid ended. Now it goes down so fucking far with the banners and the and the Instagram scavenger hunts and and just all this <laughs> mishigas. And half the time that never even gets done. But you're you're sort of obligated to present it because there this kind of weird notion of of 360 degree synchronicity or whatever it is. It's like a, what? <laughs> so I I think that that hurts creatives. It doesn't allow them to come up with big ideas and also to develop work that has a, a POV. Mm-hmm. You know, so much, I see so much, and I'm not going to name names, but I see people on, on LinkedIn and Facebook just going off about how we all need to be data-driven. Well, fuck that. It's like, I'd rather be insight-driven. Mm-hmm. There, It's easier to tug at the heart and touch someone's emotion if you're revealing a surprising insight, a, a human behavior, and that's what we did with the ABC thing. And they, there was this understanding that TV is bad for you and people were bad-mouthing it. And we just flipped the switch and said, no, let's let's defend it. And I think there's those kind of insights with lots of different things. But we just get so caught up in like, well, we got to talk to the 34-year-old mother who drives a Volvo and, and goes hiking on Tuesdays and Thursdays and has a Shih Tzu dog. I mean, what the hell is that? That's not how big ideas happen or pe- or brands get famous. Absolutely. Now we're we're, we're going to get into that, but but, I, but going back to your book for for one second, and the bravery of it. Um, you're out there on social media. I see you all the time in my feed, and you know you have no problem tweeting at the president. You have no problem tweeting at his offspring. <laughs> I mean, has anyone kind of you know said? Tone it down. Hey, we're going to send the FBI over here. You know, you know who tells me to tone it down? My wife. (laughs) Well, she's always been sensible. (laughs) She made one crappy decision, and then from there on, she's been very sensible. But, um, no, she's the one. But, you know, like, for me, it's too late in the game now anyway. I've sort of... Like built up this reputation, and you know I like being honest and 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 opinionated, and that's just who I am. But on the other hand, I could argue I get hired on a lot of jobs because of that. I mean, mm. I don't want I don't want to get into my my age here, but I'm still you're 44, Richard. No, 40, yeah, I'm 40. All, I'm 44. We all know that. <laughs> but you know, I still get called. I mean, I hear from a lot of colleagues who they, they tell me their phone hasn't rung in a while. I, I just came off a a, a, a two week thing doing a Super Bowl spot, so I can't say who who I was doing it for, but I'm still getting the call to do the work. So, you know, yes, I could be putting off people, but on the other hand, I still get jobs. People still want that kind of brand of humor. So, um, you know, I I live for in that kind of uh, design world where people say it's not successful unless, you know, 40% hate it and 60% love it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I subscribe to that. Absolutely. So many listeners, as we have on the Disruptor Series podcast, I, mean, I know this is a milestone for you. I mean, where else can people, you know, 
see this thing. I feel like this book needs to be in more places. Yeah, I know. I'm not. I'm not very good at that. I mean, I'm doing this, but friends keep telling me it's like, oh, you got to do book signings and and get out there and do readings. And I've just never. I'm never really good with that stuff. I guess I should be, but I should have hired a publicist. But you know, I didn't have the money for it right now, and I just, uh, I just use social media the best I can to promote the book. And you know, that's the other thing you've seen. I do a lot of ads for the book on oh, yes. on, on, on Facebook, and I'm I'm like the world's worst Photoshopper. But I think that's part of the charm where I'll insert the book into people's hands, and I'll have them reading it, and you know, like. Uh, put funny funny words in their mouth and you know i enjoy doing that that, that that's another tool that i have is like i know i know how to do ads for things so i do ads from my book well yeah and i think you need a, you need you need more media the ads are good they're funny the mitch mcconnell stuff's funny but um <laughs> yeah i i i literally was, was reading this thing uh, a couple of weeks ago when you first you know published it and i thought wow this this could be a one-man show you know this should and I don't know. I don't. I don't know why. You know, Donnie Deutsch doesn't put it on his show. Uh, you know, Morning Joe. I think they would like it. So uh, I don't know. You need. You need to do more with it. Yeah, I should send them uh, complimentary copies. And uh, I actually thought about like uh, I mentioned this in one of my blogs, uh, like going to Washington D.C. and setting up a table right on Capitol Hill and like hand out books. You know, sign books right there. But I don't know if you need a permit or anything to do that. I mean, Ooh, that's genius. Um, I mean, imagine. No, no, I love that. Imagine if. You know, like every half hour you would read another letter or get like, I don't know, Jeff Daniels to read them or, you know, get some celebrity. I don't know how to do it, but uh, it, it, it's, you know, again, it's it's a great book. I think a lot of people, you know, would love it. They can download it. They can they can buy it. But it feels like it's now it needs an audience, too. Yeah. I, well, I hope it finds an audience. I'm doing what I can, but you're right. I should think about doing something else. Some sort of stunt. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk. We, 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 we've mentioned a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your journey. I mean, you, you weren't always a, a, a funny, you know, uh, letter writer to Washington. So how how did this all start for you? Well, this is a while ago, but I, I was um, a copywriter at a recruitment agency. That was how I got started writing Help Wanted ads. And then I became pals with uh, our friend Jim Genuine and another friend Tom Parker. And we were he Tom was at Saatchi and Jim was writing ads for wheelchairs. It was you know the three of us were just struggling. And then I think one day I said to them I said, "You know, we should do a parody of Ad Week." And and they said, "Yeah, that's a that's a great idea." So we started getting together and started piecing it together. Um we would divvy out assignments and you know we would make fun of Barbara Lipper. We would we would do the the little ads and review kind of thing. And we took all the elements of Ad Week and we satirized it. And then we put it together in I think it was an 18 page parody magazine. And we pr- and we put our own money into it. Th- this was the thing that has always driven me and Jim and Tom's like you don't just come up with the idea. You have to fucking execute on it. Mm-hmm. And that's what separates ideas from people you know the doers from the dreamers i i was determined to get this thing done so we put our heads together and we put our money together and we printed 5000 copies of this mad week and then one day i'll never forget it was an april fools day and <laughs> i forgot i forgot which year but i had a pickup truck and the three of us jumped in the pickup truck and we started downtown on wilshire and we stopped at every ad agency along the way oh and we God. hit like we hit every one of them, and we knew how many people worked in each one, so we, we would allot them a certain amount of copies, and we would go up to the reception and just dump off these Mad Weeks. <laughs> and we did, it took us the whole day to do it, and we got through the whole town, and, like, the next day or so, 
everybody was buzzing about this 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 thing that we had done this 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 parody and sure enough i mean we each we, we were interviewed at the new york times and ad week and ad age and it got a little buzz for for all three of us and then from there, we the three of us got together after that, and we wrote a movie, and we sold a screenplay. Right. So, you know, I mean, and, and again, and that, that was our first screenplay. The three of us, would after we, after we did Mad Week, we sat together, what are we going to do next? And we sat down, and we wrote a screenplay, and, uh, you know, we did it in pieces just so we, it could all come together. And then uh, we had a friend who, uh, who was another writer who had been quite successful in Hollywood, and he put us in touch with his agent. And the next thing I know, there's like a bidding war going on for this screenplay from three first-time screenwriters. Hmm. And we sold the screenplay for a shitload of money. And unfortunately, you know, right after the uh, the screenplay sold, my dad passed away. And I didn't have the energy to keep doing the movie writing thing with those guys. But, you know, Jim and Tom went on to write a lot of movies. And from there, you know, we, we had some buzz and that sort of launched... Hmm my ad career into little better uh, environments, you know? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I see some people now trying to do some stuff. There's, there's a, there was that kid who did the, um, the spoof uh, video, he did the, the, the rap song for, for Sprite. But I don't see, you know, a lot of people doing what you did, which is basically, hey, I'm going to, you know, stick my neck out here and do something kind of disruptive and crazy. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't think that's part of my nature, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the kind of thing I like to... Uh, bring into the ads that I, I I work on and create is just uh, I I'm a big believer in the need to get out there and and take a chance. I saw something recently that uh, I forgot what agency that said uh, if the briefs come out and it doesn't sound weird or strange, then the briefs not right yet. Hmm. Which I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. And I think I think that's a a great way of looking at things. You know, it's like otherwise you're not going to get attention. And the, the other thing is like uh, and Lee used to always speak to this. You know, we all have a, a limited amount of brain space in our heads and, you know, we're tied up with, with family and, and relatives and finance and all that other shit. There's very little real estate left for brands. And so if you want to earn some of that space in people's heads, you've got, you've got to be different. You've got to be not just separate from the other, their competition. You, you've, got to, you've got to earn a place in people's heads. And that takes some effort. That takes a willingness to get out there. Well, yeah, and I think it, it, it's, uh, it also reminds me of what, what Hegarty said. You know, what's the most valuable piece of real estate? You know, it's, it's a corner of somebody's mind. Yep. And uh, it's, it's very tough. And I think these days, too, there is so much chaos out there that it is hard to stand out because there are a lot of people trying to stand out. Yeah. I mean, look at the insurance world. I mean, who would have thought years ago that the, you know, the insurance industry would – have some of the the funniest commercials out there, but they do, you know. Yeah, and I think there's there's a challenge for them now because now they're all funny. Yeah, they're all trying to be funny. So wait, which one? Which one is it again? And that's why I think you know Geico tends to win because you know they also have the biggest media budget. And yeah, and then so when the other agencies try to do funny stuff, I think people come away and go, "Oh, that's another Geico ad." Yeah. So after so you so you had a little buzz happening with these uh, you know kind of self made projects. Uh, then then what happened next? Well, getting into Shy Day back in, I think it was 90 or 91, for me, that's always been, you know, the launch pad right there. Because, you know, when I got in there, it was sort of, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to do, to do work and to do work that would be visible and, and make a difference and, and build a name for myself. And it was also the, the, always the kind of work I wanted to do, you know, like at previous places, you'd do work and then you'd show it to the creative director and they'd tell you to tone it down. 
or, you know, knock it back a few notches. But th- that was never the case at Shiat. It was always like, how can you make that different? How can you how can you twist it again? How can you, you know, just make it feel different? You know, like like it represented the agency. And I always loved that kind of uh, mentality and tried to take advantage of it as, mu- as much as possible. And maybe just tell people a little bit about the ABC campaign, because, you know, it's hard for a lot of young people to realize just how revolutionary it was. And just, you know, the notion that here was going to be you know, a campaign for a television network to talk about television shows where the only visual is going to be the color yellow. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, that was, um, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, we, <laughs> that the round that finally got approved was only after six weeks of trudging through some other stuff that Lee kept killing because he had been in meetings with Jamie Tarsus and Bob Iger over Disney and they said, we're coming to you for a home run. And we were pitching against, uh, I think Wyden was in it and BBDO and, you know, all the, the top tier agencies. So, you know, Lee was pretty strict on what we were going to go out the door with. And we did, we were doing tissue sessions, too. And we finally, you know, one day John Shirley and I were sitting sitting around and it, I don't know, it just occurred to us like, well, you know, like the shows that ABC had, they just sucked. I mean, they just sucked all. And so the product we weren't going to find the magic in the product. So we found the magic in the brand, which was that we were going to stand up for television. We were going to do an ad campaign unlike any other and say that uh, TV was people's sanctuary. It's what they came home to after work. It's it's where they plopped themselves down and, and sat for five or six hours. And, and why was that bad? It was actually a good thing. It's where people went to recharge themselves. So we just took this kind of defensive attitude where we would stand on the front lines for television and it just literally opened up a box and all the initial headlines, like we wrote 20 headlines in, in the first four hours. It just They just kept spewing. And that's when we knew we had something. And then the following week, uh, we had mocked them up on on like really rough comps and we had done, done a tissue session with uh, the ABC people and we had five campaigns and ours was one of them. And we had a big room there, and they were looking at all the work, and they all just they just gravitated to this yellow thing and thought, this is what we want to do. This is – it's bold. It's unlike – you know, we also benefited from the fact that broadcast network advertising had been shit for, until then. It was like they'd find some jingly song and – you're the one or whatever kind of crappy song they would find. And that's what they would – and they'd hire people to sing and dance and smile and hold balloons or I don't know, some bullshit. So we just did, we did something that was kind of smart, a little postmodern and and had oodles of attitude. And, uh, you know, to this day I still can't believe my luck on that because it almost died the night before the, the pitch. And then we went in there. We, we pitched it to Bob Iger and all, those, all his people and they just loved it. And then we got a call like I think – Two three days after we had, we had pitched the work, they said, "You guys won the account. Now start making the stuff." And we said, "Well, what stuff?" And they said, "The stuff you presented in the, in the pitch," which you know, if if you've done a lot of new business pitch, that that rarely happens. But they said, "We want all of it." They just said, "Just start. Just roll the presses." Amazing. Yeah, and then it sort of just took off from there. Amazing. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things too that I, that I loved about uh, your process because I you know witnessed it you know being a few cubicles down was that uh, and you guys would do this on on everything you worked on and I don't know if you were you know conscious of it but I certainly observed it is that you guys would get the brief and you would just start writing. And there'd be headlines and there'd be ad door boards all over, you know, you, you're, you, you and Shirley had your cubicle. And what was interesting is that 
the idea, even if it was not going to be an at-home idea, the idea started that way. Yeah. And to me, it did two things. First off, it, it got kind of your head's empty and like, wow, there were ideas. The second thing was, as a competing team, you'd be like, fuck, Shirley and Siegel have cracked this thing already. They already have at-home. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because you, know, you saw the uh, the Steve Hayden um, commencement speech he did, you know, and he's talking to these students at his, at his alma mater and it's when he discovered he could be a copywriter, he's like, nobody, you know, nobody had ever told me you can make good money by slapping a clever f- bunch of words down on a page. And that's really, you know, the genesis of it all is like boiling it down to six or seven or eight words. It's sort of, there's a discipline to it and it forces you to, to get, once you get there, then you, how do you extrapolate that and make it into other things? But it does, it does force you to have a, a philosophy. It's, you know, it's, it's the essence of the, of a screenplay elevator pitch, you know, mm-hmm. you got to boil it down to its essence. So, and you got to that essence has to be so intriguing that people go, "Oh, I want to find out more about that." You know. Well, to this day, on on pretty much every every project, uh, and I and I work, you know, in all parts of the agency now. I still kind of start with, all right, I'm just going to write, even if it's a finance, you know, we're going to do a, a finance review. It's like, okay, what's the headline here? Mm. Like, what, what, what's the at-home for this, you know, financial review, which I'm sure you're like, oh my God, it's led to that. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I just saw an article the other day that said the outdoor is coming back. OOH is coming back. Yes. And I hope so, because I think it's one of the best mediums uh, I miss the days when, whether I was driving down to Saatchi or when I my shitty time down at YNR, where you drive the 405, and you know you'd see billboard, you'd see great billboards all along the 405, and you go, oh wow, I wish I thought I had thought of that. Oh yes. One of the first things I did for Nissan was, uh, yeah, the Nissan Altima. They were just launching it, and it's still one of my favorite boards. It's like the you know introducing the Nissan Altima. The the sedan for the filthy smart, and all, and all it did was take one word and switch it, and go okay. Well, it's not a luxury car, but it, you know it's not an expensive car, but it's a smart car, and that right there, you know, you could argue that that summarizes what that car was about. Absolutely, and I think it'll it'll work perfectly uh, as we reuse it for the Versa uh, <laughs> as a uh, social post. It's all yours. <laughs> All right. So, what's next with the book? Are you gonna do anything? Are you gonna do anything more with the book? Are you gonna write another book? Um, well, you know, it's funny because the whole letter writing thing seems to work for me. I mean, I thought about I'd like to write a novel, and um, I kick around some ideas, but I just don't know if I have the the discipline for that. It's just you have to live in that world. Like, I don't know how Kathy does it, and and my friend Jim does it too. It's like you have to occupy a world, and it has to. You've got to map out from the beginning to end where it all goes. And I just don't have that attention span. I I like to, I think in 60 seconds, you know, <laughs> where it starts here. I know where it's ending and I just got to fill in the, the parts on the way. So I'm much more of a shorter kind of uh, attention span writer. And um, I'm still fascinated by this because, uh, you know, the Nigerian scam, it keeps going through different um, iterations that keep evolving and stuff. And now what I'm getting is, uh, and I did this on the blog for a while, but I keep getting these invitations to join the Illuminati. <laughs> and I, I love the Illuminati. The, the, the whole notion of the Illuminati is, is so rich for me. And it touches on so many things about, you know, deep conspiracy, people wearing funny things. There's this whole notion that it was, uh, you know, it, it's a division of like uh, the world Jewish finance officers. So there, it touches on anti-Semitism. And I just I just love 
the cloakishness of it. You it's know? all and, of and your Jeopardy categories in one exactly, in one exactly. bizarre subgroup. <laughs> and and it's also it's all you know like I've done a lot of research on the Illuminati. It goes back a, a couple hundred years. The, and the guys who invite me into the Illuminati, they don't know anything about it. So it, it makes it easy to sort of goof on them. And I've gotten. I don't know. I have like 20 of them that I store on my on my computer. And so that might be my next pursuit where I just kind of sort of scam bait those guys and and lure them into my trap and see where that goes cuz it it has a it's it's a it's a lot richer than, you know, some guy saying I have 12 million dollars that my uncle left me and I'd like I'd like somebody in the United States to help me move it over there. This is to join their club and they have all these kind of weird <laughs> these weird rituals that they do and funny eggs and candles and just weird stuff that, I don't know, I just find interesting. Well, we look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be... And, but then the other thing is, like, I don't I don't know... Like, I know the next project is coming. I just don't know where it is. And that's part of the magic of it is is letting it find me. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I, that's the part I love. I love it. I love it coming to me from somewhere I didn't expect. And then I go, oh, wow, I'm going to pursue that. Well, if there are any ideas that come with this book, I, I think that there's more to be done. Because I think one thing that is great about, you know, your Mr. Siegel writes to Washington is that it is on the side of the, the right side of history – and it would be really good to uh, to disrupt uh, the disruptor in chief, as it were. So I don't know. Maybe we can get a couple people to uh, just read them, put them in places. I don't know where, but uh, there's got to be something that's got to be done. Well, yeah, I, I hope so. And I I will definitely give it more thought. And especially with the the election coming up, I mean, that's I mean, you 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 got back to the before when you said, what's your hope for the you know the outcome of this. I mean, hopefully my outcome, the outcome is if the Republicans lose the Senate because that's the wall that needs to be broken right now. Well, well, people will get the book. I don't know. Maybe they'll send you some ideas. I know I know where they can find you. They can find you on Twitter. So so before we let you go, uh, give us one piece of advice. You know, we got young people who listen. We got CMOs who listen. But uh, just give us one piece of advice from the land of Rich Siegel. Uh, well, I guess it goes back to what I was talking before. Is like um, I, I'm a big believer in finishing and um you know i've run i've run three marathons i've done triathlons uh i'm currently doing a weightlifting thing but i'm i'm really really big about setting a goal for myself and finishing because there's something in the pursuit of it and you, there's self discovery there's a sense of accomplishment but i hear so many people oh i had an idea for this or i had an idea for that and it's like do it then just fucking do it there's so many tools at your disposal that you'd be and and life is too short not to do it. I mean, you got to make a mark here somewhere. And so I always tell young people just just do it. Even if it fails, even if it doesn't go anywhere, you'll learn something from it and, and the next one will will happen. My daughter, my my youngest daughter did a project for school and her professor was so enthralled with it. She goes, this could be like a documentary. Hmm. And she actually turned in it, she got a job offer because of this project she did. And I was so proud of her that she started it and, you know, went out and photographed these people, did the interviews, put it together on a website. And it's it's called The Daughters of Esther, by the way. I'm really proud of it. And and my daughter interviewed uh, Jewish women of color, yeah. which is, I thought, like a great project. And she turned it into something. But more importantly, she did it. And now she's interested in expanding it. She might uh, go across the country and find other people that might be willing to do this. And I keep telling her, I said, contact a publishing house, this could be a great coffee table book, it could be something, but just don't limit yourself to just 
you know, thinking about it, just do it. And that's that's what I would tell young people is like, you, you just got to put the sweat in and, and make something happen. That's awesome. Hold on a second. Sean, our producer here, is suddenly inspired. <laughs> hey, Rich, can you just say the website one more time? Because a bunch of stuff pops up when you Google it. So I just want to make sure people have the correct one for your daughters. Oh, thing. it's uh, the the daughters the daughters of Esther. The daughters of Esther is that dot com? Yes. The, uh, the website is daughtersofesther.com. dot com. Thank you, that, and Sean. Thank you. We're, we're not cutting that out. I, I, I like that. I like that texture. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rich. Good to hear you laugh and. Uh, Again, the book is uh, Mr. Siegel Writes to Washington. Go buy it and uh, go do something about this country. Thank you so much, Rich. All right. Thank you, Rob. All right, brother. Take care. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com. 